Welcome everyone to the Gen X Photography Podcast. This is episode 34, and I'm your host, Mario Piper. I really thank you for joining with me. Now, my uh, co-host, Suzanne Peterson, is not with me today, um, so this is going to be a solo show, but she will return uh, later on for uh, an interview, and we're looking forward to that. But for today, we're going to go digital. Yes, digital. Uh, I know that the focus of this podcast is analog. You know that I love film. I talk a lot about film and uh, we'll never give it, give it up. But uh, today we're going to talk about digital. Now we're not going to talk about digital cameras that we might think of, you know, normally like a, a mirrorless camera or a DSLR point and shoot, something like that. But instead we're going to talk about digital cameras that are uh, relevant to our film lives, and also, because I enjoy them, some digital cameras that are important for humanity a little bit later on. But let's start off with that first uh, first set there, the digital cameras that are important for our analog photography. Well, what kind of digital cameras am I, ta am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about scanners. Now, some of us use DSLR scanning, and that's, that's cool. I've nev never ventured into that. Um, the focus of this, the next couple of uh, minutes, next several minutes, will be uh, flatbed scanning. In particular, the Epson V hundred uh, V six hundred series. It possibly applies to the Epson five fifty as well, uh, the V five fifty. So, if you don't have those, um, then this might not apply to you. Although there may be some relevancy uh, with what I'm about to say. Now, why are we talking about scanners? Well. It, it, by and large, for most photographers, scanning is not the, uh, you know, most enjoyable aspect of analog photography. For some of us, it is quite enjoyable. I know I enjoy it to some extent, but by and large, it's not the most enjoyable, you know, aspect of photography. But it is an important part of our photography, especially in our modern world, because we want to share our photos. And scanning is an important part of that. Now, for me, why did I get the Epson V600? Well, when I first started uh, with my film photography, you know, time, I, uh, I realized that I wanted to do a lot of it myself. So I, you know, decided I was going to do a lot of my own developing. Of course, I still send some off, especially if it's special film, uh, to be professionally done. But by and large, I wanted to do it myself. I wanted to learn the process of developing. But in order to fully, you know, uh, enjoy the photos that I took, I would have to find a way to digitize those, either print, which would be a, you know, maybe, maybe I could have done, but I decided to go digitally. Uh, so find some way to, to view those photos, turn them from a negative to a positive. And so scanning was the perfect way to do that. So I researched and researched what kind of scanner would be good and I settled on the Epson V600. For some reason it just it looked nice, the price was right, and I bought it. And you know 
uh, it's been a good, good scanner, and I, I still enjoy it. I, I enjoy it. It's got its foibles, its quirks, its twangs, uh, but by and large, I enjoy this the uh, this scanner. But I've talked about this in my podcast. I like shooting all different kinds of films, and film the the way film dries is different depending on what film stock you use or maybe even the the particular day it was you know manufactured maybe there's just a slight variance and so this film dries flat and this film doesn't you know my love for Kodak Gold it's never failed in in that regard it always dries flat and I appreciate that but some film does not dry flat at all and uh, in particular expired films because when you buy expired film that film the film in that in that roll of film or in the canister has been wrapped around the inner spool for years and years and years perhaps and so the the longer it's you know wrapped around that spool the more it's going to be curly or cupped when it dries after you develop it um but I love the look of expired film there. It, it just has a really interesting look. Every role I've shot has been unique and different, and I, I really love it. Um, but one inherent problem with with cupped film when you you know when you develop it, hang it to dry, and then go to scan it, one inherent problem is that that if you put the the film in the film holder. You know, I'm going to take a pause here because I, I want to describe, first of all, what I'm talking about with the film holder. So the film holder, there are two parts of the film holder. There's the, the film tray and then the snap-on, the snap-in thing that keeps the film in place. The, what I'm talking about is the film tray. So not the little snap-on piece, but the, the actual film tray. And when I talk about the top end of it, uh, for you that have the uh, Epson V, you know, 600 or 550, um, what I'm talking about is, or referring to as the top part of the tray, is the end of the holder that has the, the little diagrams of the uh, slide film holders, as well as the 35 millimeter film strip, the, the, the white printed uh, images of how to, you know, how to lay the, the film in the trays. That to me is the top end of the, the film, film tray. Uh, the bottom end is, of course, the, the other side of it. So anyways, back to uh, cupped film. When you, when you slide it into the film tray and, you know, you put the top, the, you know, the front end or the top end of the, uh, of the film into, that, uh, into those little slots on the top end of the, of the tray and then lay it down, well, it's, it's lying there, but it might be cupped. And there's a couple of problems with that. One is the focus of the, of the scanner. You see, the, the scanner, when it goes across the film... When it, when it starts imaging the film, um, if it's perfectly flat, then every part of that film is equidistant to to the, the scanner, you know, the, the camera, the scanner camera. Um, but if it's cupped, then the edges running along the length of the film will be closer to the uh, scanner camera than the center because the center is curved upward or curved downward if you lay it the other way. I always have mine curved upward. Um, so it's, it's, you know, further away from the, the camera 
thus making the focus not quite the same. So that's one problem. The second problem that I found is when, especially when you have egregiously cupped uh, film, when it's scanned, you start to see what's called Newton rings. It's these oblong, multicolored, almost rainbow-colored effects on your film now, or on your pictures. Now, once in a while, that might be an interesting effect, you know, if you're looking for that. But every image having that, it, it I, I didn't like it. Uh, I tried to, you know, edit it out, but that was a process, and it was just, it wasn't worth my while but I definitely didn't want that effect on my photos. So what to do? Well, I researched and researched, found out that there's a certain name for that, that's Newton rings, and that there's a product to help with that situation, and that's called anti-Newton ring glass, A&R glass. So I looked and looked and researched and found a company that sells Newton ring glass for the Epson V600, and I bought a set. It comes with two two glass uh, two strips of glass. Now, a note about this glass is it's very safe. It's chamfered on all edges, so it's not sharp. Uh, very easy to use. And another thing to note is that it, uh, each side of the of the glass is different. One side is crystal clear, and the other side is frosty. If you lay the glass uh, the side of the glass that's crystal clear down onto the onto the film so that you can flatten the film you're still going to have newton rings because you're putting a, a glossy side the glossy side of the glass against the glossy backside of the film um, and that will create even even more uh, newton rings so you want to put the frosty side down lay the frosty side against the back side of the film and that will it will remove any Newton rings. It's a, it's a wonderful process. A third thing to note, though, is that that, and this comes in handy with a, a, something I'll talk about in just a little bit, um, or comes into play. This glass doesn't fit within, or fit underneath the, the little uh, grooves that the film slides into on, on, uh, in the, on the top part of the, of the film holder. Uh, there are two grooves on either side of the tray, for the 35 millimeter, and the the A&R glass doesn't fit underneath those grooves. It fits just behind those grooves, so that comes into play in just a little bit. But uh, just something about the the A&R glass, uh, something that uh, that I learned um, about using A&R A&R glass. Uh, actually, two things that I learned. Uh, happened pretty recently. The first thing that I learned about using A&R glass, and again, it's very, very wonderful to use. It does help uh, with the majority of films that, that are slightly curved. But if it's egregiously curved, then what I have had to do is actually use like electrical tape to tape down either end of the A&R glass. And instead of using, uh, you know, cutting my film strip into you know, six exposures, I cut it into five, and that way I have a little bit of uh, room to put the tape on, uh, to tape it, tape the uh, A&R glass down. But one thing I noticed <laughs> when I was doing this is, uh, first of all, it does work. It does hold it down, which is good. 
but I started getting this error message when I'd go to do my pre-scan. It would say that uh, uh, image not found or document not found, and then I'd get an error, blinking red error light on my scanner. And then it, it wouldn't work, it closed the program. And I thought, well, what's going on? So I turned off the scanner, turned it on, same thing happened again. And it just, it kept on doing that, kept on doing that. And finally I called Epson and uh, the, the representative I talked to didn't really even understand what I was talking about. You know, they don't make these, uh, these scanners anymore. It's old technology. Um, so it just wasn't that helpful. So I, I thought, what, well, it, 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 something's wrong with it. Something is definitely wrong with that. I didn't know exactly what to do. I looked up, I did some research, I couldn't find anything. And uh, so I ended up buying a, another Epson V600. I'm, I decided to go with the same scanner because I'm used to it. You know, I have everything all set up and it, it's what I'm used to. Well, I bought the scanner, it came, I set it up, tried to scan that film that I was originally scanning that gave me the error message and wouldn't you know it, I got the same error message. And this time I'm thinking, what in the world? It's a brand new scanner. <laughs> What's going on? Well, I went onto the Negative Positives Facebook group. I believe that's where I posted the question. And I asked, you know, has anybody ever had this problem? And a bunch of people responded. And then one person, I don't remember who, but one person uh, gave their their observation or their, their comments that something on the upper tray, the top part of the tray, needs to be clear. And I looked, and looking at the tray, I thought, my goodness, that's what it was. So here's the thing. I told you that I, for egregiously cupped film, I will actually tape down both ends of the A&R glass, and again, cut the film strip into five exposures instead of six, because I need a little bit of margin on either end of the A&R glass for the tape. To hold it down but so on the bottom side of the the film tray that's totally fine there's nothing to worry about but on the top side uh, it in the film tray not the clip-in part but the actual film tray itself on the top end of the 35 millimeter trays there there are there's a, a two rectangles cut out and then three holes cut out. There's a rectangle, three holes, and then a rectangle. Now, those three things cannot be covered. They need to be open to the scanner. The scanner recognizes them in some way. I thought they were just cutouts to save weight or something. I didn't know. But they are important for the scanner to detect what the film is or to, to de detect something about the film. So those two rectangles and those three uh, holes and on the again on the top end of the 35 millimeter trays of the of the film tray they can't be covered they have to be completely you know visible to the scanner so that made a big difference once I understood that um, the, the scans have been perfect so just to, if you have the Epson V600 or the, maybe the 550s like that, I don't know how many other scanners, scanner trays are like these, but if you have this particular scanner, then if you're shooting expired film or really curled film and you're using your A&R glass and it's still not working and you have to end up like taping it down or weighting it down in some way so that it 
does lie flat, then just make sure not to cover up the, the two rectangles and the three dot holes, so to speak, on the top end of the film tray. And that will save you <laughs> all sorts of error messages. Um, now, the second thing I learned recently about using A&R glass, again, A&R glass is wonderful. Uh, it's really helped me to be able to successfully scan old film and still get good images. But another thing I learned is about editing. Now, I've talked earlier about editing, that I like to let the film sing, but editing sometimes is helpful to get the image that I want. Um, and I've always felt kind of torn about that because I, I do want the film to be just on its own to give, to, to be able to, you know, say what it has to say without any sort of digital input. And I know that just scanning it as digital, digital input, there is some interpretation there, but nonetheless, I just wanted to try to keep it as analog as possible. But I noticed relative, relatively recently, uh, and I could have noticed this earlier, but I didn't. It just dawned on me pretty recently that when I put the A&R glass down, of course, like I said, the A&R glass doesn't fit underneath the little s slides that the, or not, not slide, it's, I don't know what the terminology is, but these little uh, grooves or slides that the, uh, the 35 millimeter film slides under to keep it in place in the film holder. The A&R glass doesn't fit underneath that on the top end of the, the film holder. It doesn't fit underneath. It just butts up against the, the bottom edge of that. Um, so there's a little, when you're, when you're putting film, you know, in, in the, in the tray and you slide it underneath, there's, and then put the A&R glass, there's a little bit of the first exposure that is uncovered by the A&R glass. It is completely transparent, or tra yeah, I guess transparent from the vantage point of the of the the scanner. The scanner goes through the film and then up up to the top part of the you know the uh, the the scanner tray or the scan scanner lid. Whereas the film under the A and R glass has to go through the film and then through the A and R glass as well before it gets to the 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 scanner lid. So there is a little bit of difference between what the scanner scans in that first little section of that first exposure in the tray versus what's underneath the A in our glass. The, I noticed in that first exposure, uh, when I zoomed in on the Epson software scan to you know, just make sure everything was correct, that the the part of the film that was not under the A&R glass of that first exposure was more vibrant than what was underneath the A&R glass. Now, what was underneath the A&R glass does look good, but it's less vibrant than what the actual film, just unadulterated, no A&R glass on top, what that section of that film uh, showed. So when I opened up, you know, I did the scanning, when I opened up uh, the GIMP software, that's the free software that I use instead of Photoshop. And um, I went over to uh, the the Colors tab on the top, clicked on it, drug down to the Levels tool, and I always have historically brought up the either the mids or more recently just the, 
the dark ends. This is going to be a little bit difficult to explain, but I'll make I'll put a short video on my Instagram feed on the Gen X Photog we'll Pod Instagram feed to help you know help visually what I'm about to say audibly. So in the colors tab on GIMP, when you click on that and drag down to the levels tool. Uh, there's the the sliding arrows. There's uh, there's the dark arrow on the dark side of the histogram, the mids, and then the or maybe the lows, mids, highs, darks, mids, lights. I'm not sure what the terminology is, but the the black arrow. Okay, there's a black, gray, and a white. On the black arrow, I'd always drag that arrow uh, until the actual histogram of the photo started. Um, a lot of times there'd be a little bit of a space between the extreme dark end of the histogram until or of the where the histogram could be until the histogram actually started. There'd be just a little bit of space. And whenever I drug that dark, you know that arrow on the dark end of it over to where the histogram actually started, well then all of a sudden the photo looked vibrant. Now we're a word about this. Whenever I dra drag the either the light side arrow or the dark side arrow, then every then the middle arrow will move uh, respectively or correspondingly to the motion of the of either end, either the light arrow or the dark arrow that's being moved. Uh, that middle arrow uh, doesn't move independently unless you move it itself independently. It moves correspondingly to the motion of or the movement of the the black arrow or the white arrow so i always move the the black arrow there doesn't seem to be any problem with problem with the white arrow or the light side of the histogram it's the dark side of the histogram um or the blacks maybe again i'm not aware of the terminology but anyways i drag that dark arrow up to where just just where the histogram starts and I noticed that the, the photo became vibrant, just like that first little section of film that was not underneath the A&R glass. And so that made me think that this A&R glass, while solving one problem, taking away the Newton rings, and solving another problem, keeping that film flat, is introducing something that needs to be taken care of. And that is that it's introducing sort of a milkiness or a... Uh, it, it's it's just less vibrant. It less vi it produces a less vibrant image than just a straight scan through the film itself without having to use the anr glass. But that can be mitigated by going into again. I use GIMP, uh, the the GIMP the free app. Go it, go to the colors tab, click on it, drag down to the levels tool and then drag that dark arrow up to where just where the, the histogram on the low end of the histogram, the dark side of the histogram, just where it starts. And that really takes care of the sort of the weird effects that the, the A&R glass produces. So those are a couple of things I've learned about using A&R glass. And that's of course using my digital camera, one of my few digital digital cameras that I have, my scanner, of course, I have my iPhone. But um, anyways, that's 
that's one digital camera that I'm talking about. And of course, to you that don't have, uh, you know, who use DSLR scanning or maybe a different kind of scanner, what I just said may not apply. But for those of you who do have the Epson V600 or maybe the Epson 550, and if you use uh, the GIMP, uh, GIMP software, uh, then this definitely could apply. So hopefully it's a little bit helpful. Now I want to talk a little bit about another kind of digital camera. Now this I'm really excited about. Um, you know, the, the title of my podcast is the Gen X Photography Podcast. That's the name of it. And I was thinking about some of the most important digital cameras that have come out in my, you know, since I was born. Um, now, when I say the most important, that's subjective, of course. Uh, there, there's all kinds of important digital cameras. But I'm somebody who loves, loves astronomy. I love, I love space. I love seeing things that are out there, you know. And so some of the most important digital cameras are the cameras that are on the probes going out into distant parts of our solar system. Uh, now, it started, you know, way, way, way back. Think about the Pioneer probes. I'm not sure if they had any uh, uh, cameras on them, but nonetheless, you think about those early, early probes that went out and gave us a, a better understanding of what's in the solar system. And then in 1977, Voyager 1 and 2. Amazing, amazing, amazing machines, amazing uh, probes, spacecraft. Now, each of these uh, probes had an 800 by 800 pixel sensor camera or a 0.64 megapixel camera. Can you imagine that? 0.64 megapixel, less than a megapixel. And yet with these probes, we were able to understand and get more, you know, beautiful images, close-up images of Uranus, Neptune, Saturn, Jupiter, these you know, outer planets of our solar system that we'd seen with telescopes, now we get to see, you know, beautiful images taken by this, this probe that's out there, these probes that are out there. Uh, interestingly, I can't remember which one of the two, it was either Voyager 1 or Voyager 2, anyways, one of them turned back and took a, a photo of the solar system, and there's one famous image called the pale blue dot. You might have seen it and it's this basically a band of light it's solar light and it's hard to see any anything defined but if if you look at it there uh, you look it up the pale blue dot usually is accompanied with an arrow pointing to this one particular dot it's a blue dot and that's the earth there's a, a wonderful quote i believe by carl sagan about um you know all everything that humanity has ever experienced is on that pale blue dot, all the good and all the bad things, all the love and all the bloodshed, everything has happened on that pale blue dot. We need to take care of it. It's our home, you know. But that, <laughs> that most famous image, and of course all these other images, were on this digital camera made in the 70s, 0.64 megapixels. So amazing technology, even though it was limited. We'll go forward to the late 80s, early 90s, and what was launched the Hubble Space Telescope. Now this was a, the camera on this, uh, on this telescope was quite a bit 
um, quite a bit more uh, advanced than the ones on the Voyager. You know, I forgot to mention something about the Voyager. I'll get back to the Hubble in just a minute. Something interesting about the Voyager probes is now they are interstellar objects. They're the most distant artificial objects uh, from Earth. So, pretty cool. They're quite distant. Back to the Hubble. So, the, the camera on the Hubble Space Telescope is a 16 megapixel wild, wide field camera. It's UV, a UV visible channel sensor. It's a CCD sensor. So, it's de you know definitely a digital digital camera sensor. We know what CCD sensors are if we've been into digital photography. But this digital camera, the, uh, combined with this wonderful telescope, has really advanced scientific understanding of the universe. One of the things it's helped us to understand is the age of the universe, the universe being between 13 and 14 billion years old. With the Hubble Space Telescope, we were able to understand the age of the universe. In addition, back in 1995, uh, there were two teams of scientists who were researching type 1a supernovas, supernovas and the light that emanated from those supernovas, uh, studying the redshift, the redshift of, of, uh, of the light coming from those supernovas. And what redshift is, is because... So if light travels through a vacuum, it's traveling at a specific rate, 300,000 kilometers per second, or about 186,000 miles per second. Pretty fast, you know? <laughs> so that's traveling through a vacuum. But now space is expanding. So the light that's traveling through space is still traveling at the, the same speed. Light travels at a constant rate in a vacuum, but that space is being expanded. And so that light is being expanded while still going the same speed. It's kind of a difficult concept to really visualize. But that light being expanded, you know, it's, it, 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 UV, light, UV light rays are really, really tight, uh, tight sine waves. Visible light is a little bit more elongated. And the more toward the red and the infrared, well, those light waves start to become much more elongated. And so when, the, when space is stretching out that light, it's stretching out the light waves, not tearing them apart, but making them more toward the infrared. And so that's when, it's, when you hear the term redshift, that's what it's referring to, the stretching of light coming from an object. Um, so these two teams of scientists back in uh, 1995 were studying type 1a uh, black holes that had a specific uh, redshift and that was to help them to understand you know the expansion of the universe well both of them found out something <laughs> uh, that was pretty fascinating and pretty important to the understanding of our universe they independently independently found the same results and so both teams got a Nobel Prize well what was the result it helped, using the Hubble Space Telescope, they were able to discern that the universe, yes, it's ex expanding, but it's accelerating in its expansion. So it's ex ex expanding faster and faster and faster. That's pretty, the implications are pretty serious. One of the implications being that if this rate of expansion continues in the sense that it's continuing to expand at a faster and faster rate, then the most distant things in the 
in our visible sky that we see now will, you know, progressively be outside of our uh, field of vision because the light light doesn't speed up; it goes at a at a more quick rate. But if space is expanding at a faster and faster rate, then the space is expanding faster than the light can come to us from those distant objects. And more as more and more time passes by, more and more objects, even closer objects, will become beyond our scope of visible visible range. So it'll, in essence, appear to make our universe smaller <laughs> because it's getting bigger. Uh, interesting. But the Hubble Space Telescope with this digital camera helped researchers understand that fundamental aspect about our universe. In addition, the Hubble Space Telescope has given us such beautiful images. So it's increased our scientific understanding and it's giving a, given us beautiful images of near objects and distant objects uh, from planets, star clusters, other galaxies, nebulae, what have you. Just such, such beautiful images. Now, if you want to take a look at some of the most beautiful images that the Hubble Space Telescope has provided, uh, you can Google Top 100 Hubble Images, and uh, it'll bring you to de several different websites. But one website that I recommend is esahubble.org. ESA, that's the European Space Agency, esahubble.org. And it will give you the most beautiful Hubble images and you can download those images for free. They have various download uh, sizes from high resolution TIFFs all the way down to the low res resolution JPEGs um, and everything in between. So you can download them. Um, the only thing you have to do is if you post them, give them credit, give the researchers, give you know all the credit that's due. But in addition, uh, there's a little blurb uh, about whatever object you're looking at, whether it's a nebula, they'll talk about that nebula, where it's found, and some interesting facts about it, or a galaxy, or, or you know, what have you. But beautiful, beautiful images. I highly recommend going to esahubble.org to, just to have <laughs> some inspiration. Another uh, probe that went out with a digital camera was the New Horizons probe. Now this probe uh, was launched, I believe, in 2006, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was 2006, because I believe it was a nine-year flight uh, from Earth, and the primary objective was to reach, make a flyby of Pluto, the outermost planet. Of course, Pluto is now deemed a, a dwarf planet, but it's still a planet in my mind. Um, so it finally reached the uh, vicinity of Pluto, I believe in 2015, did a flyby of Pluto, going at a fast, fast rate. I believe when it was launched, it did a couple of flybys of other planets, uh, slingshotting around planets to gain speed without using a lot of initial energy. It was a very efficient, uh, efficiently <laughs> launched uh, space probe, and it, it is going pretty, pretty fast. But it gave us some beautiful detailed images of Pluto, that outermost planet, and showed us that Pluto is not some boring chunk of rock and ice. It actually has topography. It has mountains. Uh, it has interesting features, plains. Uh, there was a, a backlit photo of uh, where Pluto was in between the New Horizons probe and the sun, and you could see this halo of sunlight around the circumference of Pluto, 
indicating that Pluto has an atmosphere. Way, way out in the far reaches of the, of the solar system, there's this tiny, tiny planet that has an atmosphere. It's pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool. In addition, it gave us some beautiful images of its primary satellite, Charon, as well as other satellites. And now it's studying other Kuiper Belt objects. The Kuiper Belt being the part of the solar system that's beyond the terrestrial planets, beyond the asteroid belt, beyond the large gas giants, uh, you know, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, out to the outer regions just before reaching the Oort cloud of our solar system. So these Kuiper Belt objects, there's, you know, potentially millions of Kuiper Belt objects, if not thousands of them. Um, these little tiny, you know, ranging from small, small objects up to dwarf planet size, like Pluto. Pluto's considered a Kuiper Belt object. Charon, uh, there are others that are out there that are, you know, definitely globular. Uh, they're spherical. They have enough gravity to, to make a, a sphere of, uh, a, you know, accumulate into a sphere or coalesce into a sphere. But this New Horizons probe, <laughs> interestingly, had a one, has a one megapixel CCD sensor. I, I think I read 13.3 millimeters squared, which is, interestingly, just slightly smaller than a micro four-thirds sensor, which is 17.3 by 13 millimeters. So a decent size sensor, but uh, nothing too large. But still, with this probe, it gave us wonderful glimpses <laughs> of this far you know, this, this planet that, that we'd never really seen in great clarity before, in addition to other objects out in the Kuiper Belt. And who could forget the Cassini, the Cassini uh, Huygens um, probe? Uh, the, this, it was a dual, dual probe, uh, dual probe launch, basically two probes that were going to the Saturn, Saturn system, the Saturnian system, and the Huygens probe was going to break off from the Cassini, or broke off from the Cassini main probe, which was in, in, uh, primarily studying Saturn, Saturn and its rings. The Huygens, the Huygens uh, probe went off into Saturn's largest moon, Titan. So both had a, a primary objective, both in the Saturnian system of the solar system, and that just think, well, Google Cassini images and Huygens probe images, H-U-Y-G-E-N, that's the Huygens probe, and then Cassini is C-A-S-S-I-N-I, -S -S -I, I believe. Um, look up Cassini images of Saturn and just pre be prepared to be blown away with the beauty of Saturn. Uh, some of the cool images that have come from the Cassini probe, including the top side of Saturn, you know, the, 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 I don't know if you'd call it the northern or southern axis, but one of the, uh, the poles of, of Saturn. Uh, just look up a, a pole of Saturn, and you'll see this hexagon. <laughs> the, the, the gases moving around it form this giant hexagon at the pole of Saturn. Uh, it looks like a, you know, just a, a part of a honeycomb. It's a perfect hexagon. Beautiful, beautiful uh, example of, uh, it, well, just in my opinion, an example of God's creation. I'll just say that. Um, but nonetheless, beautiful nonetheless, no matter how you believe. It's just beautiful, some of those, uh, these images.
uh, these objects that are out there, these planets that are out there, are mind-bogglingly beautiful. And then the Huygens probe gave us this uh, initial glimpse into Titan. Now, Titan is a satellite of uh, Saturn, and it's the, I believe, the second largest satellite and the only known satellite in our solar system that has a dense atmosphere. So that's pretty cool. You know, we think of all these satellites as being just kind of dead rocks, like, you know, even the moon, you know, as having just dust and craters and all that. But no, no. Uh, Titan has a thick moon, or I'm sorry, thick atmosphere. Uh, there are some uh, satellites out there that have water underneath layers of ice, like liquid water. Uh, others that have volcanic activity. Uh, some that have a dense core, enough to make a magnetic, you know, have a magnetic field like the Earth has. So a lot of these uh, satellites out there are almost like planets themselves. They just happening happen to be orbiting planets instead of orbiting the sun, which is why they're not termed by the International Astronomical Society as planets. They're termed as satellites, but they're by and large, <laughs> uh, you know, by far the more planet-like than moon-like, you know, at least some of them. But anyways, that was by this uh, this wonderful dual uh, dual <laughs> guess dual probed probe of the Cassini-Huygens uh, mission. And of course, just launched was the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh, so exciting. Uh, so this, this telescope has, let's get the details out of the way. It has an infrared uh, imager, an NIR cam, near cam, infrared uh, imager, and it has 10 sensors at four megapixels each. So pretty good, re pretty good resolution, but it's an infrared uh, camera. That's that's important. So this was just launched uh, this past Saturday. For those who celebrate Christmas Day, uh, launched from uh, French Guiana, and uh, it's going to take about a month or so to get to where it's going, which is a Lagrange point, L two Lagrange point. Uh, it's a Lagrange point is somewhere out in between two body, two large bodies. Uh, where gravity, the gravitational waves between the two bodies kind of neutralize, I, from what I understand. And so objects within that little zone, what's called the Lagrange point, and I believe there's five of them between the Earth and the Sun, if I'm not mistaken. And this, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to Lagrange point number two. And the, uh, objects that are within those Lagrange points are able to maintain stability without being buffeted by the gravitational waves between the two larger objects. So it's kind of like a, a neutral zone, if you could call it that. But it's gonna, it's gonna take a little while to get out there. It's about a million miles, a little less than a million miles away from the Earth, uh, quite a bit distant from, uh, from the moon. So out there, you know, it's orbiting the sun rather than orbiting the Earth. Um, so it, it's out there in the cold, cold reaches of, uh, you know, in outer space. And uh, what this probe is going to do, or this telescope is going to do, it's not supplanting the Hubble. It's, it's doing, it's more powerful than the Hubble for sure. But it's going to be studying infrared light versus visible and ultraviolet light. Now, 
whereas the Hubble gave us some beautiful images, I'm assuming the James Webb Space Telescope is going to give us beautiful images as well, but they're going to be in infrared. And the reason why, again, this redshift, it's, it's set up to study the furthest, furthest stars and galaxies, meaning the, the earliest stars and galaxies. The further away you go, the earlier they are in universal history or cosmic history. So it's, its endeavor is to study the most distant stars, the most distant galaxies. When Essentially, when the universe turned on, there was a dark age between the Big Bang and its initial expansion before stars started to be formed. And once stars started to be formed, that's when the universe lit up. And so it's trying to study as far back as when the universe turned on. And that's if everything goes smoothly, if it's deployed, you know, it's going to self-deploy uh, once it reaches the L2, um, L2 spot. Um, then it's, you know, going to start studying the early part of the universe. That's going to be exciting. It'll give us a, a better understanding of what happened early, early on. And then it's also going to study exoplanets. <laughs> it's another main mission uh, to study exoplanets. You know, now we have uh, over 5,000 exoplanets that have been observed, initially observed and documented. And this James Webb Space T Telescope, or JWST, is going to study in more detail uh, more about those exoplanets. And who knows, maybe life? <laughs> It'll be interesting. Uh, be happy to, to find out. So anyways, these were some of the uh, most, it, for me, some of the most important digital cameras that have ever existed. You know, I, I've talked about the Fujifilm X100 and the Fujifilm X10, cameras I love, Panasonic uh, Lumix LX3. I, you know, I, I love these cameras. But the Hubble, my goodness, <laughs> the New Horizons Probe Cassini, the James Webb Voyager 1 and 2, in addition to all the other probes that I didn't mention here, I mean, there, there have been dozens and dozens of probes sent out to study, one studying the sun, others studying Mercury, the messenger, you know, probes studying Mercury, one's, you know, studying Venus, all, all kinds of probes, giving us a better understanding of this marvelous universe we live in. So thank you all for listening. The next episodes will definitely be back into uh, analog. Uh, been doing quite a bit recently uh, that I'd love to talk about, but we'll wait until future times. But thank you for listening to this episode about digital photography. And uh, as always, <laughs> kind of ironic, keep those, those analog, analog vibes, vibes alive. alive.